Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, The Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer, multidisciplinary artist and designer, Osman Yusufzada, to discuss his debut, The Go-Between, a portrait of growing up between different worlds. Osman reflects on his early childhood in, in the city of Birmingham in the UK. He was raised within an ultra-Orthodox Pakistani Pashtun community, one largely hidden from the view of outsiders. Osman, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you for having me. To the title of your book, The Go-Between, do you still feel like you have that kind of role? I mean, I think, um... Yeah, I mean, the the title of the book was kind of, was going to be another title, but then the, a few meetings with my editor, it became something else. And for me, it really sits really well now with the book. And I think this whole world of being able to sort of traverse different spaces and as a kid where I sort of operated between sort of female spaces and male spaces and was really a kind of like a camcorder in those spaces of this world, which is so hidden and so distant in a way. And and I think it, I mean, I think fundamentally it's also the type of person I am. I'm quite introverted. Um, I'm an observer. I think there's always this idea of, you know, where do I find space and belonging in a sense? And and it's just like you you know you're always sort of like somehow think that you're in a role or play acting as you kind of navigate across one space to another space. So I think yeah, the go between is probably my kind of like you know my ad hoc sort of name as well. <laughs> it does it does have its advantages having a foot in different worlds, and you depict one of those in your book, your family, in your community, and then towards the end of the book, your student life in London, and and now uh, the world of an artist traveling the world. I mean, even if it's all you've known, the act of going between suits you. Yeah, I think there's a kind of real, I nourish the sort of role of the observer. I mean, I really, I relish that word and it gives me a lot of nourishment and it's this real kind of way of just kind of really noticing everything and and that's really my creative fodder in many in many ways basically just that sort of idea of occupying a space maybe being a bit of an interloper but not necessarily knowing you belong because not all of you belongs in that space your family, Osman, came to England with the wave of arrivals of Pashtuns from Pakistan in the 60s and 70s, and they couldn't integrate because of linguistic and cultural barriers. I quote from the book, most arrived unable to read the notices that stated no coloreds, no Irish, no dogs, and that included your own parents who are illiterate in any language. And yet one generation on, you've written this powerful and moving and acclaimed book is that success and is that success in one generation <laughs> um yeah if i look at my cousins to some extent um some of them are working on construction sites in the middle east 
Um, and I think if I look at me, I mean, even if I look at my siblings, I mean, they're probably a bit more in a kind of professional, less kind of volatile career choices. Um, I think there is, I, don't, I mean, I think it's, it's one on one respect, it's actually how do you develop as a person? Another respect, whether, how do you see yourself being successful materially or not? And, you know, I think there's many markers of this idea of what success is. But I think this idea from someone who is illiterate, being born of someone who's illiterate and being able to write something and try and tell their story in a community that doesn't necessarily want to be documented, it comes with its many different sort of layers and issues in itself. But I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I am quite lucky to some extent to be able to have those um to finish school, to go to university, many things which kind of like a lot of people take for granted to some extent. Um, and within one generation, it was, a uh, you know, from, again, I probably repeat myself, it's just this idea of actually, it's quite a little bit of an artistic metaphor, of like from one body, you, you come out of another, from one body, you come out and then that, you don't necessarily be are the same person but the person who nourished and gave you life basically and you have to kind of unfurl in a different way um so yeah i mean it's kind of it's still a bit mind-boggling yeah but i think being a creative is also quite problematic as well because if i was a kind of lawyer doctor whatever there'd be like this sense of achievement or respectability but I think being a creative there's not like you know there's a conversation of craft or being a craftsperson like my parent my dad was a carpenter so he could actually work um, with his hands but this idea of working with your hands and still trying to have this conversation as an artist doesn't always kind of people don't really understand it in in those kind of communities yeah, so would your parents or your communities see you as successful? Um, I think when I covered Selfridges in the largest canvas um, in the world, I think that was actually seen as kind of quite successful. And and I think you come when you come from very little and, and into a world of plenty and the opportunity to be able to kind of have it becomes more socially mobile. Um, I think material sort of material wealth is kind of quite important, I think, to them because material wealth gives you a sense of security. And I think to many people, it is actually really important. So they thought covering this building, this gigantic bit of real estate was this massive, like big coup. And it was kind of allegedly, I had made this building and it must have been multi, 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 multi million pound kind of deal you know an artist fee is only a kind of like a, a minuscule pittance in the scheme of things you note at the beginning of your book osman that you change the names of people to protect their privacy um it's it's a it's a bare all book otherwise though and and you paint what amounts to a very troubled picture of life for girls and women in your community you write and I quote from the book, I don't remember when I began to fully register the unspoken tragedy inside our homes, inside my very own home, perhaps never, not while I lived in it. 
which is that once girls come of age, i.e. the first trace of puberty, the world itself became forbidden. And the girls, my sisters among them, you write, were effectively vanished from life, illegally disappeared. It made me wonder, Osmond, if integration is possible or desirable for an ultra-conservative Pakistani Pashtun community in the UK. I mean, I don't really, I mean, it's a Pakistani community and I think it's a kind of, yeah, they are. I was with some friends who are probably from, um, from Sindh in Pakistan, and we were kind of like just watching random YouTube videos over dinner. And um, I sort of brought some songs up from my region and my friend actually said, oh, these are the people that eat people. So they're, they're seen as these real kind of tough monsters as um, a bit backwards, a bit barbaric. Um, but there's so much beauty still there in in so many respects, but, yeah, it is a really patriarchal. I mean, the whole of the whole of some of those countries are very patriarchal, and they operate. Some of them have how women actually are engaged in economy, how in the wider society. Um, it varies to some degrees, but here you have what's what's created as parallel worlds, and in effect, parallel economies. So these women created were kind of super dynamic they created shops in their homes and their front rooms they kind of they brought up kids together they created kind of committees and saving banks together so you know that there is a, a kind of like a flip side and i think once you kind of look at it in a very way or yeah education is denied when girls hit puberty at the age of 10 or 12. you're seeing that now in afghanistan where I mean, the universities or schools after middle school are actually closed and girls are not kind of allowed to continue education. Um, so there's this, I mean, on one side, there is these kind of like restrictions of a gate on a path that allows you to become who you are, you know, in this kind of world of individual kind of pursuit income in relation to this wider community or extended family or your role as a wife and as a mother um and so you, you definitely you have those restrictions and they're quite massive and they can be really really destructive you know i can still remember really vividly when there was a kid that got run over on the street as i as i there's this auntie as this woman standing on the threshold of her door and she was screaming and the men wouldn't let her go outside to comfort her kid until the ambulance came and then she went into the ambulance basically to go with her kid to the hospital so it's these kind of real moments and i think there's also these hidden stories that i um well i really i i needed to honor those other their stories in a way, their, their stories would have been lost. You know, we, people move on, you know, it doesn't really matter the story. And I think these are really these hidden stories of communities and how these women at that particular time were able to kind of navigate space in a restrictive, but also in a joyful way as well. Within that crazy ass system, 
there is still this kind of humanity and beauty as well. You account in the book your mother describing her five-day journey from Pakistan to Birmingham, wearing a burqa in white linen in the Afghan style with a mesh-like screen to see through decorated cutouts that gave her no peripheral vision. And it made me think about focus. Narrow, of course, but also kind of laser sharp. And it also made me think about survival and, and, and the old lie of keeping your head down and staying out of sight and staying out of trouble. And in trying to define what integration is, you know, behind the veil or behind the net curtains, or alternatively transitioning and going local, are we forced to choose one or the other? I think it takes time. Um, when you, I mean, you also have to understand when communities like that came over, it wasn't, it was a really satellite community. It was really patriarchal men that came over from particular regions. It wasn't the musicians. It wasn't the queer community that came over. It wasn't a kind of like, you know, it, it wasn't, there was a bit of a brain drain with the middle class professionals that kind of came over that, that saw basically had, had the codes to be able to adapt to a Western world. Um, that was kind of different, but you had, here you had this really satellite restrictive community, which was part of a really expansive community, which is much more layered and much more nuanced, but then you only take a little bit out and you put it somewhere else. Mm. And then you take away the livelihood at that time where, you know, come the 80s, all the factories start closing down and you have the deindustrialization of the North and the transition of the economy from an industrial base into a service-based economy. And these people who can't speak or re basically speak the, the tongue or read and write the tongue of the country they've migrated to, or they've never really been actually engaged with in those in those ways. You know, it's not as if like, yeah, you work four days a week and then the one day we'll teach you English basically, or we'll teach you read or writing. There's not this kind of idea of we'll come and visit you all the time to see how you actually really fit it in. I mean, you know, no one really does that to some extent on on this idea of migration, but we're always wanting this. We always talk about, well, the rhetoric that comes out of Parliament is that the useful and the right type of migrant really needs to come to these shores. And so you, you when this, you know, going back, what I was saying was like the 80s and the industrialization of the North happened, these guys became completely redundant. They, they became redundant in so many ways. You have this a, a vacuum forming because the men don't go out to work anymore and the mosques actually become these very focal points of activity and then again you have a different conversation going on with the type of religion that you're kind of really spewing out from the pulpit um and yeah it's and they're just basically there they're just there for the taking taking by for the mullah that there in many ways it's just a group which is just stranded somewhere that you know, all of the, all of the other um, migrants tended, I mean, tended to have moved out of that area. So you've created these ghetto areas, and now they're called these jihadi capitals of England. 
I mean, this is like broadsheet as well as tabloid headlines. I think that, you know, we as a country are also to blame how we treat and how do we integrate migrants in many ways. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I think, you know, again, this idea of like who has permission and who gets to choose and who's allowed to choose as well. You wrote the book from the perspective of you as a child, which, which neatly and, and refreshingly removes judgment and keeps the prose clean and, and everything's normal, right? For a kid, at least up to a point. Um, sometimes even a father beating a mother, a girl's not going to school. Given your writing this though as an adult, did you ever feel yourself kind of wading in and then having to delete it all? No, I, did, I really didn't want to. I write in a very observational way. And I think there's a kind of like as if I'm a ghost sometimes. And, you know, there was like, oh, yeah, we need more of you. So sort of like this editorial kind of like feedback. It's like, I just want to put more of you in. And, and, you know, I made some changes, but very little. I really stuck to my guns in a way. Predominantly, the book was going to be about a 10 year old kid but you know there was this whole thing oh you've got a profile you've got to put in another chapter of where you are today and what happened but I just wanted it to be this kind of world of a moment in time where you're just kind of observing this this world and you're just observing difference you're coming out of one space and you see people living in a different way you go into another space there's different sets of nomenclature or customs and then you go into another space and then you go into in your own space and you you try and try and make sense of it sometimes there's a section in the book about how your community took it upon themselves to get rid of the prostitutes working the streets of your neighborhood and they formed yeah. vigilante groups writing down registration numbers of curb crawlers and there were fights with pimps and and you write this ironically in expelling jamila and co Jamila is one of the prostitutes. We were expelling something in ourselves, something intangible and exotic about our arrival and history. What was it about this act of kicking them out or moving these women on that struck you? I mean, the red light districts tend to operate in the cheapest parts of town. So we as migrants operated and took root in those, the cheapest parts of town, basically um in the south of birmingham and yeah it's not that we don't come from a culture of prostitutes you know we, we have celebrated courtesans which are kind of like grace bollywood and lollywood kind of like movies as well as kind of these kind of very exotic women and um and it, it again it's this idea of difference that we are all kind of different and we have to operate space in different ways whether how we make a living, what do we say, whether we, you know, how we use those spaces. And so it was just these kind of like contrasts of these worlds. And there was something that we, you know, where it's just, I think as Muslims and the way we were brought up, it was always this idea that you are the purest, you are something, there's no, yeah, we are sinners, but the steadfast being steadfast on the right track is actually allowing you to kind of navigate again this world and the hereafter another world basically 
And, you know, and I think there's this kind of like these, these purgatory type of prostitutes are still kind of looming within ourselves as kind of like carrying our sins, but we try to kind of expel ourselves out in that kind of narrative. So I just felt that they were just, you know, it just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's expelling something of yourself and denying something of yourself, basically. You described the first time your mother went back to Pakistan since she'd first set foot in England, and it was a trip that you went on too. And you write this, now I would be living out all the stories dad had told us of his homeland. For years, it was a mythical place to us children, but it had been all mum could dream about. It's funny, isn't it? The being in one place and dreaming of another, and then being in that place and dreaming back. It's this idea of actually you want a better life, a new life, something that actually will give you, you can turbo boost this idea of social mobility from one generation to another, like begin with your, your question right at the beginning that I can write a book because my parents are from illiterate, but I couldn't really probably do that somewhere else. Highly unlikely, but even here, it's kind of unlikely, but I've still done it. But um, so yeah, it's pure, economic migration, but then how do you bring your cherished ways of being from one place to another place? And what do you give up and what don't you give up? That trip to Pakistan turned into a six month stay. Enough time to learn quite a bit more about your roots? Yeah, most definitely. On one side, you've got this very extended family and bunch of new characters who are your blood and you don't really know and they're very familiar and they all want to cuddle you when you're a kid and they all want to pick you up or play with you and you're kind of like a special guest that's actually come and then on the other side you've got is this 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 architecture is so different there's none of the roads are tarred there's hardly any cars anywhere um you know everyone's living with livestock the houses are inside out in their courtyard houses. There's no windows outside onto the streets. And so it's this real kind of world where, um, you know, I see my first burial, which is like kind of completely mad. And, and it's, I mean, and I see someone actually being buried and, and just that whole process of life. And it's just so open. And you, you see these cycles of life. So I think, you know, it's much more, it's less sanitized existence. And it's not, it's just um, unlike what I saw in my first seven, eight years of my life, basically. And then I see something which is a bigger, a bigger painting, which has got so many different characters and they all have their own problems. So you're seeing sort of new problems kind of arising and um, relationships which are kind of problematic and relationships which are loving. So these characters become bigger and bigger. The same relationships are still there. And then you've got, you know, the first time I saw a trans person in, in our village, he was just wearing like a really colourful dress. Like, you know, men are so only supposed to wear sombre colours. So this man is wearing this like this sari like fabric and he's wearing a big kind of shawl on top which is like really colored and 
it's got some bangles on and it's these kind of real nuances which I don't necessarily see in Birmingham. So it's this really expansive world. And, and then when I get older, I see a bigger, a little bit more of a, a wider cultural kind of expansive world when I go into the cities. And But that's much later on. But at that time, you, you know, just navigating from Birmingham to this village in Pakistan is also kind of such a massive contrast. And, and did you feel as a child at that time any confusion about belonging, where you wanted to belong more? Or did that come later or, or did it not come at all? Yeah, no. I mean, it was like, yeah, we're British when we were in Pakistan. So it was this idea that, you know, we're, we're somehow that we can get away. We've got this variety passport. We've got this British passport that can, gives us the ability to just do get out of here somehow and you know and now I even kind of realize now it's like you know I have a passport that allows me to roam the world like a master unlike my cousins who who have the wrong passport and they kind of they have to roam the world like a slave and go through a whole kind of like yeah visas takes months to get you know there's this passport that's actually got you to another space and it's a stamp of identity but then it's you know I think fundamentally as you as you grow older and you know at each stage you try and find your own people whether it's a particular friend or a pet or something that gives you identity and or an alternative family and when you go to Pakistan now, and more recently, are your optics that of a traveller? You know, I know you like this observer role, or, or do you feel like you're going home as well? I do. I mean, I, I miss that kind of... I go to kind of any migrant high street quite regularly just because I feel really need that fix, like little Pakistan or little India or little Chinatown where, you know, we show ourselves migrants kind of like we show ourselves on our high, on the high street in some respects, basically we create little universes and, you know, and it's quite a sad thing sometimes because, you know, it's where it, it's again, that you're allowed to, you're allowed to exist in those spaces, but then it doesn't um it's it's not but you know you're not allowed to actually exist in other spaces so like we're happy to eat someone's food but they're not happy for them to be our neighbor um so it's just kind of you know it's just it's this mashup of a world that i really try and make sense out of through a personal story as well and is that the same kind of clash of emotions when you return to birmingham now and see the terraced houses and the streets you ran our errands on and yeah and i think now in london i feel like there's, there's very much a bit there which is from birmingham from that area but then this identity in london has actually developed a lot more that can really fit back into that world so it's like a square and a round peg 
kind of conversation so it's like where do you really you know you still want that you still um it's like prince harry's apology of like of um whether you know um you still want that world but then you become something else and you you want to kind of fit him into another world but then you don't necessarily fit in there either these these kinds of, of childhood memories that you write about can become blurred and the experience it's it's a combination of that experience itself the intrinsic experience but then the memory which is on replay and it's incredibly dynamic and, and morphing and i noticed your author's note husband which stated as with all memories recollection sometimes meets fiction and as you as you wrote the book did you try to peel back to the original experience it's an interesting interesting question um did I peel? I have a really photographic memory. So it was just actually these, these things that happen. So then I try to describe how those things are happening. And that's really, I think that's how I kind of approached it. And then I try and have this description of spaces and of things that, so it's just kind of really, it's across timelines, you know, maybe the wardrobe wasn't in that house maybe it was there at seven years later or something or the curtain was a different color or certain but you know i think memory does rely on fiction and you know i think even in i think someone told me once i don't know if it's true or not that the french sea memoir as literature as non as fiction rather than non-fiction um and and I feel, I mean, and I've spoken to a couple of other authors and really eminent ones saying, well, everything I've written is really, even if it, if it's kind of like marketed as fiction, it's really autobiographical. Mm. And um, so that's why I really wanted to make that blur. And also kind of like, just to say that these are my memories and your memories may be actually different. And I didn't, I didn't, I wanted at least to be able to um i mean the, the the memoir is written like on kind of like a novel or a series of vignettes basically and and in a way i really wanted to hide behind that as well because i changed everyone's names i changed locations i changed i i make i made composite characters i really try to kind of mash stuff up so it became a little bit fictionalized um but you know the but the threads are all kind of stories which are real really in my memories but where do you feel comfortable do you feel comfortable in london in birmingham in pakistan or, or somewhere else i know you're traveling a lot with work i mean we met in bali for example but is there something about being on the road and anonymous and solitary and or, or do you look for and long for a place of rest and an anchor i think it goes in cycles i long to be on the road or i long to be doing a project somewhere but then i really need to kind of come back home and just feel somewhere i feel kind of safe as well 
And I think that is, um, yeah, you know, you go into a different society, whether it's an elite society, um, it's a different conversation altogether. You have to behave differently. Well, you don't know I mean you behave normally. I mean, you just have to be really polite and well-mannered. But there's a real kind of like, you know, you go into spaces where somehow, you know, even, even now, I mean, okay, apart from going away, even now when I just did a project at the VNA, um, my solo show, just recently, even going into the VNA, it really that building just imposes on your body in such a way to kind of put you in your place. These kind of soaring arches that you're there, but you can't really somehow be part of that space. Or, you know, it doesn't, it's these tastemakers and these tastemakers have different roots of being able to get to that sort of space and that world isn't really kind of your space. So it was, you know, I really wanted to kind of jar things up on what I did at the beginning. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like my, my work and my journeys actually take me through different spaces and some of them are really amazing. And then some of them give me like this whole, these window into other spaces that is really relevant to my work or my writing or what I want to really do. And so it's, you know, you're just on some eternal, as it seems like I'm on some eternal road for always kind of doing stuff and making. And, and then I have to come back home, which is North London. <laughs> How do you think your parents would have felt if they could have read your book? My mom said that actually writing the book was the most stupidest thing I could have done because I told her I was writing a book. And that was quite interesting. It was this whole idea that it, it just reinforced the, reinforced the idea that it's a community that doesn't want to be documented. So the struggle is not documented. You came over and then there was a struggle in the middle, but then you ended up becoming an accountant or a doctor and, and you're like a really well um, healed professional that can just be an example to everyone in the community as someone to look up to. But everything in between, which is where I kind of come in as a creative, <laughs> doesn't really work. <laughs> it doesn't, uh, there's no kind of, um, no, that's not really, it's the idea of the Asian face. You, you never, you know, you don't basically, you, you can't put anyone in a difficult position. Yeah. And was it that the same for your relatives, your community? Was there also, um, I got a bit of backlash from the book. Yeah. I think my, I think, I mean, sometimes I feel like, I don't know why I've written it. Sometimes I feel like, well, I've lost, you know, I lost a family to write a book and that's always kind of like something that I have to juggle with. But I, then I think on the other side, I, I've written these, these stories which were completely hidden i mean i need to there was this one i did this really amazing talk with kit Deval in birmingham and there was actually someone from my community who was in the audience and this girl put her hand up and she said well you wrote the 
you wrote the histories and the stories of our mothers and our sisters. And that was really quite, it was, it was really emotionally powerful and I probably need to pay her to follow me around with each talk <laughs> so she can say the same thing. And, um, but that, I think there is. There was this one girl who kind of reached out and said, she goes, I, I, I work in a school now, but people find I can't really always talk about my background or whatever, but now I can tell people, here's a book about my background. This is my background. And if you want to know anything about me, read this. So it's kind of, um, yeah, hopefully if it's changed, maybe it's changed something. Is there a next book? I know there are a lot of projects going on, but is there a book you're working on? Yeah, there's two can you tell us about either or both please one is a book of poems and some prose and with my drawings and etchings and the other one is another book another book of course that's the one that's now just got me by the throat so mysterious okay i look forward to hearing about that at some point Osman Yusuf Sada, you are here to stay. Thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome, and my thanks to the support of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. <laughs>